Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. David Marmer and Alok Mishra are the director-producer duo behind One Bedroom. Made for an extremely low budget, One Bedroom swept the VOD world by storm and not only made its way into Netflix's top 10 movies, but even landed at the number one spot on Netflix for some time. This is no small feat, especially for a first-time director and producer duo. This interview actually spans two different time periods of One Bedroom. I interviewed Alok and David about four months ago, and then again, after One Bedroom released the success it did. I spoke to Alok a second time so I could hear about the strategy and tactics he employed to bring One Bedroom to being number one on Netflix. What transpired was a very informative conversation, both about getting your indie film made, but then making sure that it's successful after its release, which I realized not enough directors talk about. Many filmmakers mistakenly believe that their job is just to make a great movie and that the movie will warrant positive Rotten Tomatoes scores and find its way onto major streaming platforms strictly on its own merit. This interview illustrates that this is simply not the case, and ensuring the success of your movie is a hustle. Luckily, Alok gives us a lot of details about his promotion strategy at the end of this interview. Overall, this is a very comprehensive and well-rounded conversation, and I got a seriously huge amount out of it. So fair warning, get your notes app ready for this one. On that note, I will turn things over to Alok Mich- and David Marmer, producer and director of One Bedroom. Anyway, but it's, um, you know, talking about uh, going to the movie, um, it's been an interesting sort of um, situation for us because, like, you know, everything that could have happened happened. I mean, the stupid coronavirus has prevented us from having any kind of theatrical opening, um, oh, which man. is sort of sad because we were looking forward to that. I would have, you know, definitely been, uh, probably both of us would have been stalking the audiences and just sitting in the back and like you know <laughs> doing what we did at festivals. But uh, you know we we you know in one on one end of it like you know how much money are you really going to make 
for a movie like this off a of theatrical, <laughs> maybe you make more of it, uh, you know, on demand because people yeah. are just stuck here and stuff. That's where it's at right now, particularly now. Yeah, yeah. Since we opened, um, it's been you know they the dark dark sky MPI has told us we're making a good showing right now. They're very pleased with um, the numbers that we have thus far. I mean, they, they can't tell everything right away, but you know, obviously on iTunes at least you can see that we've kept uh, we were in the you know top four movies like the first week, and then of course new stuff came out. And really thought that was you know direct com- competition for us like The Lodge and um, Wretched and stuff like that. Um, so we knew we would you know go down a bit, but uh, but we've actually been you know keeping in the top 10. What's actually weird about things right now is that like, there's just old shit that's coming out. That's right. like, Oh, like I'm fighting against them. Night Shyamalan, Shyamalan, movie. I can't say his name. I'm Indian. Uh, I'm fighting, fighting against goddamn split. It's like, you know, three or four year old movie. And this is the, you know, and then reanimator is like been reissued. Right. And so that's, oh, yeah. that's back in there. And like, what we do in shadows has been reissued. And like, so that we're also fighting against that, which I mean, there, these are, classic films you know and yeah so who seen it, like you know why not for 5.99 or either even putting them lower like 3.99 4.99 so it's like you know you definitely have a lot more competition than i was expecting at least but uh you know it's 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 still i think the word of mouth is really good on it so Great. we are getting a lot of decent like you know reviews and stuff and yeah i heard you guys mentioned it, very favorably on shockwaves which is a uh, big deal oh we were on shockwaves yeah Holy shit. Yeah. Elric Kane gave you guys a really good review. Oh, funny. I think I remember how he described the movie. He says it's martyrs by way of the invitation with a starry eyes budget. Yeah, that's that's very accurate, actually. Give it to them, actually. I mean, yeah, thank you. I mean, whoa. The funny thing is we were trying to get on them so bad, and then they were like, oh, we're not doing it. And I was like, oh, I'm so sad. I'm like, you just told me otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was there like two episodes ago they mentioned it. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Well, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, thank you. I'm, I'm going to go listen to it after we finish. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, the, the reception to it's been good, which is nice. I mean, we're at, um, I think, 83, about to be maybe 84% Rotten Tomatoes. That's great. We just, we just need we just need four more reviews from some Rotten Tomatoes accredited person to, to, put, us a, to put us into fresh. So if anyone's oh, listening, like, uh, we just need four more, four more. I'll think about who I know who's accredited. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, we're just happy that they like it and we're over 80. You know, that's, yeah. that's I think, a thing in its own right. That's no, a huge I mean, deal to be over 80. I, I think that the places that are kind of the um, the sons of bitches are uh, an internet troll-wise fashion is, is like I, IMDb. People won't even watch the film, and they're just like, yeah, I saw what happened to that cat in the trailer. One. Like, oh, Jesus what? Christ. <laughs> what? Troll it. culture is the worst. I want to I wanna report to you, but I, you know, I'm not going to. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's bad. All those trolls on the internet, it's becoming a cesspool between Twitter and people on IMDb. I mean, it's, it it's, it's negative. The anonymous nature of everything makes everyone be like, <laughs> I'm just going to fuck you for no reason. Like, mm-hmm. really? Well, hi, you, you, we work so hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, is Dark Sky, is that new? Did Dark Sky recently pick the movie up? Uh, you mean our film? Yeah. Didn't you say oh, Dark you Sky? Know, no, 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 Dark Sky has it. Dark Sky, um, we uh, met with them actually when we were at Fantasia. Oh, okay. Uh, got and it. We, we were meeting with other people too. But then, you know, we, we thought about it. And, and, you know, to be honest, I'll, I'll just say it. Like, sales agents are hor- horribly untrustable is what I've sort of like learned from friends and, you know, other, you know, compatriots that, you know, they will promise you the sky and they will 
deliver just enough to make their nut and then leave you by the side of the road to die. Oh man. So we, we got very lucky in the fact that we got a very honest company. Um, the, I'm working with another fellow uh, for uh, my next project, this guy, Marcel Sarmiento, who had a movie with them called uh, Dead Girl. And he had nothing but good things to say about them. He was like, well, I get my statement every quarter. I get paid. I get a check. And, hey. and you know, I mean, not having to chase people down for money. All these companies keep on like merging. And then once they, you know, it might have been a good company, but when they merge with somebody else, now they're some bitches. You're never going to hear from them. You're going to chase them for money. And so um, Dark Sky came to us, uh, you know, near the beginning. They believed in the project. I mean, they kind of saw the movie how we saw it. I mean, they, they're a very kind of boutique sort of, um, you know, sales agent, distributor. They take um, a lot of pride and care in all their titles. I mean, they were very collaborative. Uh, like on the trailer and like the poster, we we put them through the ringer for that. <laughs> we kept on going back and forth. And like, I mean, I used to test movies and also test trailers. So I'm like, every freaking trailer gives everything away. So we did, they let us play around with it quite a lot and they were very receptive. And so I think we actually came out with something that, you know, to, to, to my point, doesn't give everything away. Uh, and, you know, they've been, you know, very good with, um, hyping the film and the publicity and stuff. I mean, I was, I was happy. We got a, like a New York times article. We got a, a USA today article. I mean, you know, they, they we got some bigger publications and we got all the, you know, um, sort of real bread and butter places that really love horror, like dread central, obviously, you know, bloody disgusting, what have you. They were fans and they've written multiple articles. You know, you guys have written multiple things with us. You've interviewed our, our uh, composer, Ronan Lana, Landa, excuse me, uh, in, uh, and one of your um, uh, discussion groups, which I thought was really awesome, uh, really well worth checking out. Um, you know, we have we have like the hardcore horror people that are on our side, so that's the good news, if anything. And and, and it's, in in some ways, it's about getting some of these mainstream people on board. Um, you know, and that's what you hope for because you know you have a niche niche audience with the horror people, but this is actually a little bit of a movie that straddles the line in being a psychological thriller, uh, you know, psychological thriller with horror elements to it. You know, I mean, the horror is there, but it's not, you know, drastic. Dave's done an amazing job. I've been talking too much here. I, I feel like Dave should be in this more. <laughs> that's, that's your job. That's your job, man. <laughs> I'm like the hype man to your rapper. I'm the flavor yeah. flavor. Digging all the stuff. Uh, you're, don't you're don't be flavor flav. You you're, know what just happened to Flavor Flav? I know. I know. You're, but, 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 you know, he's probably the most popular hype. What man just happened time. to Flavor yeah, Flav? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he got fired. Oh, they, they, hired fired him back. Him. they hired him back, actually. Oh, oh did they? Oh, okay. they heard that. He stunt or some shit, and like, you know, Flavor Flav is all butthurt about it. And he's like, I don't know if I want to come back. Like, what else do you got to do, Flavor Flav? Come on. Let's be real here. So, I mean, come I, on. Let's be real. So, so Dave, Chuck D. Dave needs to, like, take <laughs> Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. It has really strong horror elements, but it has some of them. The, the, I mean, d- uh, after the torture scenes, some of the most horrific stuff is psychological. In fact, arguably, the psychological stuff is more disturbing. So how how are you able to balance, or what was the approach to trying to balance the psychological horror with this straight up, you know, I wouldn't, would not categorize this as torture porn at all, but there are some scenes that are just brutal. So what was the balance between the psychological horror and the, the physiological horror, if you will? I mean, it, it was it, it was a real it was kind of a tightrope that, um, you know, I was aware that that was going to be, um, a delicate balance, you know, long time ago when I was writing the script, like, and, and the script went through a bunch of different 
versions where there was more and there was less. And it was, you know, it was, it was always sort of an issue. And, and by actually, by the time Alok and Shane read the script, it was relatively close to the balance that's in the movie. Um, in an early draft, it was much more heavily torture based. Um, you know, I was younger, I was a newer writer at that point. Um, and, uh, and I, I had a little less confidence, um, and kind of felt like, well, this is a genre movie. It's a horror movie. I need to put these things in. But when I came back to it, um, uh, maybe like six months or so before um, it got to Alok and Shane, and I, I did a kind of a, a page one rewrite of it. And by that point, I remember reading it and just thinking like, you know, I remember why I wanted to write this and what was interesting to me. And I haven't, I haven't hit that. I've like focused on these these elements that are not that. And there's so many things that I want to explore about this building and about the community and, and, and about her relationship with it all that I, I don't have time to, cause I'm spending so much time on these traditional horror scenes. And so I, I really rebalanced it at that point. And, and it, it became, I basically stripped, what I ended up doing was stripping down the physical torture as much as I possibly could and still tell the story. That was always sort of my, my touchstone, which was, you know, we knew we had to have that sequence in the middle. Uh Um, because if you don't have that, and if you don't feel what she's going through, the rest of the movie will not work. Right. All of those scenes that, you know, and I'm, I'm flattered that you, that you, you know, found them horrifying. And I agree like that to, to me, that's the real meat of the movie. Those scenes wouldn't be scary if you didn't sort of have a, if you didn't have a a visceral sense from the earlier sequence of what the consequences are. Yeah. If she doesn't go along. Right. Yeah. The, the Um, seeing those scenes up front really added to the stakes of the movie for no pun intended. Um, So we, so we knew that sequence had to, it had to be really horrifying. It had to be really violent. Um, and, and, but we never, you know, a you know, he said this, you know, to his credit, you know, even when we were going in, he said, like, we don't want those scenes to be exploitative. And I, I, you know, agreed with that 100%. Um, And so, you know, there was a lot of balance. And I think actually, sort of in in the initial directing, I mean, part of it, we were very rushed, the the initial shoot was 15 days. Um, And so there was just not time. But I, I remember when we got the cut together of that sequence, you know, I had been so worried that it was going to be too much and too violent and too horrifying for the rest of the movie. And then we got that scene together and everybody kind of was like, it's not really like nobody's feeling it. Like it, it was not enough. And we ended up getting a few more days of shooting um, about nine months after we did the initial shoot. And one of the things that we really focused on in that was getting some, some better angles and some extra stuff in that sequence. And that, that we heavily used that footage. Um, and it, it really like amped up that that scene and and made it made it fly when it it really wasn't working before. I mean, you know, fun fact: uh, when we did the reshoot, uh, like that whole thing was a sound was part of a soundstage, right? Like that that you know torture sequence thing. So we realized that my office at my house had the same flooring as we had at that sequence, and so they came into my house and built rebuilt that wall like in my in my office. And then we brought in like you know all the special effects guys and like with the you know prosthetic stuff and this and that. For some reason, we couldn't get like the 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 we pounded the you know we can't almost say what happened, but something happened. <laughs> there's blood involved, and, and we couldn't get it to work. The the special effect they took it in the the bath my 
the bathroom and the thing just exploded oh shit like, all over like the shower curtain and everything <laughs> and my wife comes home like what the fuck happened here and there's like, blood no, everywhere Mary, you can watch just fake it. blood it, everywhere it, it's it's corn so it, it comes up it comes off like it'll be fine but it was just like it looked like someone got murdered in my shower <laughs> like in the Oops. guest shower actually like it was ridiculous as part of horror <laughs> filmmaking if you don't go home I, soaked in blood you're not you're doing something wrong yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice but it was a good it was, it was a good pickup to have because it really like Dave really got uh you know even more sort of better performance out of Nicole, I want to say. And it looked much more real when we actually did, you know, everything we did. I won't say what happens, but like uh it looked it looked a lot more realistic in comparison to what we initially had. Well what was your what was your approach to making that the making the pickup shots more effective after having seen it the first time and thinking that you weren't quite feeling the pain? What did you do differently this time around to to make sure I the mean, audience it was, felt it? Was, it? It was pretty clear to me actually what what was needed going in, um, and it was basically two. One was like Alok said, we just didn't have the, we had had no time to do the special effects shots, so we didn't have just like that. Just it's just that quick, you know. You just need a few frames just to see it and know what you're seeing and and feel it. So that was a big part of it. But probably even the mo- most important thing was that when we shot, um, you know, it, it's so ironic that we were shooting on a on a set, but we couldn't, we couldn't move out that wall. And so, and we were moving so fast that I didn't have time to just get a really close frontal close up on Sarah through that entire sequence. So the whole thing felt distance and, and which I knew it even at the time, like I knew that was going to be problematic when we shot it. I was like, I just wish we had time to get this because you know, the whole, the, the whole design of the movie from my perspective was that this, this entire movie is subjective. It's all from Sarah's point of view. You need to be in her head. You need to be feeling it, you know, through her eyes. And that is the one sequence where we just didn't have that. And so the, the, the most important thing I think we did in the entire additional photography was, you know, and it took like an hour probably yeah, was to get that, that extreme close up of Sarah just through the entire sequence, just going beat by beat through, through the entire sequence. Um, and we, I mean, as you know, like, I mean that, that it's not the poster, but the, the shot that we used as our publicity before we had a poster and is still like one of the iconic shots of the publicity shots that you see everywhere is one of those shots that we got in the reshoot. It's just this like close shot on her face and you see it, you know, when you're that close, you see everything that she's going through because she's just such a, fantastic actress like she just sells it all through her eyes yeah i mean you know, um, so that was really the most important thing i was gonna say the other thing that we got that was a really big thing with those reshoots and to be honest actually it took us eight months to be able to get like the band back together like it, it like, oh, literally we finished in like you know because everyone has like tv you know thankfully they, the actors are all working with good consistency and like we had you know getting our dp back was you know tough i don't even think we got him back actually <laughs> as I recall. no we didn't we didn't like we tried no, to set we, up Baron shot the, the reshoots and was, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was very good. Um, but uh, the other thing we shot, we shot was the ending. Um, in fact, we shot two endings uh, because we weren't satisfied with what we had at the very when we finished. And we knew that would be, would be something we'd want to address. And I think that we, we definitely got, you know, even, even though it was two different endings we shot, both of them were really good. Um, and it just came down to sort of what we thought the audience would enjoy more in terms of picking one or the other. I'm sure there's an alternate ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's did you a, audience a, test a, them, or how did you arrive at the ending that you went with? We did. I, so I used to. I, I did market research for film. 
for like 18 years. I tested oh, wow. these. So I actually organized um, like five 20 person screenings, which we then did focus groups for afterwards. And, you know, we, we, we got a lot of, you know, information about what confusions were there. We learned that that ending was the appropriate ending. We also learned, for example, that, um, you know, uh, I, I really wanted to see more of the cat, like, you know, burning alive and stuff. <laughs> and I think I can give that away because that's in the trailer. And Dave was definitely not a fan of that. And, well, I see a cat was- going in and out of the shot as I'm looking at Dave's camera, so I can understand why. <laughs> there it is. This <laughs> yeah. yeah. the... Uh- this is the, the inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to so, write yeah. what scares you the most. Exactly. That's exactly it. Well, the, the, well, that's the worst thing I could think of to have happened to her. <laughs> well, the point though being, I really wanted to see more cat, but 75% of the audience did not want to see more cat. And the, of the 25% that wanted to see it, it was more hardcore horror fans who, you know, arguably could live without having to actually see it. it was like it was a want to have but not a need to have yeah and so i lost that argument and that was something that came out of the test audiences and and uh you know I, I was wrong i mean you know the audience will decide you know mm-hmm. so uh, that was one of the things that we uh figured out from that um you know i i think that uh we also kind of felt more secure in a lot of our choices for like musical choices and stuff like that like it seemed to like really resonate especially like you know stuff we use in you know throughout the movie and at the end and stuff like that. So it was all stuff that sort of really, um, we were able to be happy with our choices was the idea. Nice. So how, what was the story between how the movie came together? It's probably a long story, but what was the initial inception and how did you guys go from concept to, to screen? Uh, well, I mean, the, the prologue is that I initially wrote, I wrote the very first draft of the script a long time ago when I was still pretty new to LA and I, and I was living in an apartment complex that's very much looks like the one in the movie. Um, and I just found it a really weird and kind of creepy environment to be surrounded by total strangers, you know, sharing walls with you. Um, and I was also a little similar to Sarah in just being a shy person and, and, and not confident and, you know, landing in, in Los Angeles with, with big dreams, but not sort of feeling, capable of following them. Um, so th- that was really the beginning of it. And I, I wrote the initial draft, um, back then and then, um, and worked on it for a while and, you know, got some good, you know, reactions from it. People liked it, but, um, you know, it never went anywhere and I put it away and, you know, just moved on. And, and, uh, years later, um, I, uh, signed with, um, epicenter um as my managers um with uh, jared murray and allard Cantor, um off of another script and they were like well you know what else what else send us some other stuff you got and i was like oh, i don't really have anything else that i like that much but i was like you know i i did like this script back in the day let me let me pull it out and see if i can send it to them and it was so old by then i had to update the technology Um, I like quickly changed, (laughs) changed the like flip phones to, to iPhones and whatnot (laughs) and, uh, um, and sent it to them. And to my surprise, they really reacted to it. They were like, I think there's something here and, you know, I think we could produce this and, and set you up to direct it. Um, so I went off and spent a few months, uh, like I had said before, you know, basically just rewriting it from the ground up. Um, and then they, um, they sent it to a loke and I'll let him take it from there. 
Well, uh, it's, it's as it turns out, uh, as everyone is always connected or six degrees of separation from somebody else, uh, my wife went to high school with uh, Allard Cantor, who is his manager. Okay. And so I, t- I took one of those lunches you're always just supposed to do. And, uh, you know, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this, da, da, da. Hey, let me send you two scripts. Okay, send me two fucking scripts. I don't read. I didn't read them for like six months <laughs> until, until something else. Fell, until something else fell through, and then I was like, okay, I read the first one, and it turned out to be the movie uh, Tragedy Girls. Oh, and hey! I was like, I was like, you know what? I don't think horror and comedy can work. For, at least for me, I noticed when we were testing movies, you never satisfy you know, one part of the audience, the horror audience or the comedy audience is never enough in some way. I heard the balance is 80, 20, 80% scary, 20% funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Whatever it is, it just, sometimes it just doesn't work. And for majority of time, like with the exceptions, like Shaun of the dead, for example, and stuff like that, right. like you, you more than not, it's going to not turn out well. And so I said like, uh, yeah, so that's a pass. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. We, we, we just, uh, you know, we just finished shooting that a week ago. And I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> The fuck do I know that? Like, yeah. So, um, and it's one of the exceptions. So that, that movie's awesome. It really is one of the exceptions. Actually, we went to the premiere. Yeah. It, was, it was really good. I mean, I can't lie. It's it was, it was definitely well done. Uh, and and um, Tyler uh, McIntyre did a great job. Uh, he's also a client of theirs. Um, so the other script was One BR, and in fact, we love the script. Uh, my um, producing partner Shane Worcester and I have a company called Malevolent Films. We're trying to make sort of elevated horror, thinking man's sort of horror films, and this was definitely that. In fact, I mean, you know, we had probably to take some of the good stuff out of it because we couldn't afford to shoot it, you know, in terms of the timeline that we had and blah, blah, blah. But the script was really great. Like, I mean, both of us, like, you know, read it and we just, like, called each other immediately and we're like, this, we've got to do this. <laughs> so we met, I met with Dave over at the uh, Culver Hotel. We had coffee. We talked about, like, you know, Goodfellas and, like, other uh, movies that we enjoy and had, like, we had uh, same sensibilities. And, uh, you know, and I was uh, sort of like, um, yeah, we're, Two first-time producers. You're a first-time writer-director. What could go wrong? Let's just do this. You know? so, so there, there, there's, there's what happened. We uh, we went on a merry way, and the rest is history, as they say. Nice, nice. So once you guys met, what were the next steps in getting the movie made? Well, was- we were trying to look for um, some more financing for it, um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, we ended up uh, self-financing it uh, and uh, putting our because you know the thing of it is this: when you're a first-time producer, people don't trust you. you know, right. Your first-time directors, they don't trust them either. Even if they've done shorts, it's just like you know, someone's just got to take a chance at some point. And we we're like, you know what? We'll do this as proof of concept. We'll put the money out there, and we'll you know see if we can get it back. Uh, and we're all and David's a producer on the movie as well, executive producer, producer as well. Uh, so everyone has like skin in this game, right? Like, uh, so at the end of the day, it was a thing where we kind of trusted our instincts. We also surrounded ourselves with people who were experienced. Um, Sam Sandweiss, uh, Nick Izzy, also the producers, line producers, producers, line slash line producers who um, really helped uh, guide us in a lot of ways. And I think the second most important thing that actually happened with it was that, you know, after we finished shooting, like Dave, Dave had his baby, like, early like it came like a, like a month early or something and so poor dave was sitting there trying to like edit this thing and also deal with having a baby and i'll be honest like shane and i were dicks i mean at least i was a dick i'll say that i won't speak for shane but i was just like where's our fucking movie where is this like it's, it's april now like it's supposed to be finished in march you know and dave's just like i'm trying to get through it and then so then as payback and karma is sort of a bitch in that regard like when we start to do our gonna do our reshoots then my baby came a month early. Oh wow! Like before we did the reshoot, so the only good news about that is I was able to send my poor wife and her parents and the baby and the dog 
away to my parents' house. And <laughs> they, can, they, can, they can just post up there so I can actually sleep at night and not have to do all the crazy stuff. It was like the best sleep I've ever gotten in my life, even though it was like 18-hour days. It was lovely. That's like, a good strategy. Mind. Yeah. So um, the, the point I'm trying to bring up, though, is we, we actually had a lot of uh, faith and trust and patience with each other. Uh, you know, through the entire process of it and stuff. And, you know, we, we, we took the time we needed to take, like all of us were like, we'd rather make, we'd rather be, be away from our money and make a good film than, you know, than do anything else. Cause mm-hmm. it was our first, it was our first movie is kind of proof of concept. Everyone's skin is in this game. Like I said, professionally, uh, in terms of reputation, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I'm like, I tested movies for 18 years. I can't make a good movie. So yeah, so we took our time with it and we had time to take with it. We didn't have, since we were the financiers, we didn't have like a financier, you know, who wasn't going to be patient with it. We wanted to make something good. And, and I'll tell you, it was a long process. Like, I mean, even when we did our reshoots, we, you know, we tried to apply to all these different film festivals and grant you, we were not anywhere near finished. Well, we were trying to do it because just the time was there to apply. Right. right. You know, um, and we applied to, you know, we got rejected from like, Sundance and Slamdance and South by Southwest, even like Seattle Film Festival, which thankfully we got, you know, we got Fantasia instead. If we had said yes to them, it wouldn't have had as good a festival run, I feel, because that really helped us premiering, world premiering there. Yeah. Uh, Mitch Davis, his entire crew are really smart. They're like tastemakers. I mean, not just saying because of our film. I mean, they also premiered The Wretched and Swallow and like films like that, you know? So that guy is so tuned in. And even though we weren't quite finished the version he, with the version he saw, he's like, I see something here. I, I trust you. And, and because of that, um, you know, like I said, the patience thing and, and, and the way it unfurled, it, it helped us. It helped us getting to Fantasia because then like every other like, you know, genre festival wanted to come at us. And like we or we went to them and said, hey, listen, we are a fan. Help us. Be, let us be in your festival, you know. And so, you know, we, we were able to have a really good run all over the world and get a lot of awareness out for the film. Which is, so uh, the you know, Fantasia was like a lead domino that made the rest of the festivals interested in getting a hold of the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah. and there was some smaller ones door. that were interested before. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. We were able to get into like Beyond Fest for our U.S. premiere for example, um, which is a really great uh, festival. Um, we were able to, you know, go to um, Le, Le Tronche. Am I saying that right, Dave? Le Tronche, yeah. Le Tronche. I would say, I don't speak French. But that was uh, that was our European premiere. Uh, we went, and we went all over the place. We went to, like, you know, Madrid for Nocturna Fest. We went to the, the Horathon in Dublin. We went to... Uh, uh, fractured visions, um, and I mean, we went all over the world. I mean, Monster Fest in uh, in uh, in Sydney, in um, uh, Melbourne, for example, it's a really big one. Like we went to like fourteen of the top twenty-five genre festivals. You do Night Visions in uh, Night Visions in Helsinki is a great one. We should mention as well. Uh, fantastic cool. festival. Um, so so that buildup really helped us, and I think that you know the good news was that we were sort of dancing around uh, who we were going to sign with when we were sort of going to those festivals. And uh, when we finally did go with uh, Dark Sky, we had kind of completed the bulk of our festival run. Um, we just had one more, I think, uh, we went to Gérard-Mer, right, is how it's pronounced, in, uh, in, in, in the in French Alps, which was an amazing festival. Like 20, it was incredible. 2,200 yeah. people saw our film in like Whoa. four days. They had like oh, my God. Huge, yeah. huge theaters, and people were coming to see the movie at like 9 in the morning. It was like packed except for three seats empty. You know, it was it was amazing. And, and, and I'll tell you, the movie that actually, the watch for that we saw out there in, in this uh, Rose Glass is an amazing filmmaker, St. Maud. 
was yeah. out there. That's something you should. That movie is phenomenal. On. Yeah, I've been dying so to good. see that. Yeah. I don't think it's out yet. I, I, I'm gonna try. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna try to. They pulled, they, pulled, they pulled it back. They pulled, they pulled it back to when theaters are gonna open because I, I talked to. Uh, yeah, Rose I think that's smart. A twenty four has it. They know what they're doing. Oh, it's A twenty four. Yeah, of course they're not going to just yeah. drop I mean, that, it on that, iTunes. That movie won at, out of the seven awards at Gerard May. That movie won six out of seven. We we won the, we won the other one for the audience award. <laughs> all right. <laughs> did you have a festival guy who who put you in all these festivals and advised on which to go to, or did you just do all of this yourself? I did. Alok was the festival guy. Yeah, I did a lot of research for this, and like, uh, I, I mean, I, I really researched. I call people. I'd be cold called people. Like, you know, hey, you were in this festival. What did you think? You know, and I did so much research. In fact, that I think, uh, I, I think I can say this, but um, I think um, uh, Tim Malloy over at uh, Movie Maker Magazine is gonna let uh, me and a couple other people uh, write uh, an article about. They, they have their um, yearly top twenty-five bloodiest. Uh, film festival, you know, kind of guide that they have put oh, out. Oh, that's year. great! Um, but I'm trying to advise that they do top a top fifty list, actually. And we're going to be, I think, hopefully more scientific with the way we give the, each of the festivals their rating and stuff like that. So I'm going to be hopefully helping out with that. Oh, that's great! So much research. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of these I hadn't heard of before. Yeah, it's interesting that you know, it's it, there's it, going to festivals. I think that there's a there's a lot of different things people don't think about, and I think one of the biggest one, things are like, you know, how much camaraderie are you going to get to have with your other filmmakers? Because that's a huge thing. Like, you get to know these people. You might want to collaborate with these people. So that's one issue. How your film is presented is another thing. Sometimes you're in a college auditorium. Sometimes you're in like a very souped up like you know, Odeon or something. You know. It, 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 it really they differ from festival to festival how you're actually um shown uh, and then just like sort of like the um you know uh, the, the parties and getting to meet the the, the other um uh, people in the, in the actual festival festival directors and stuff like that and talking you know shit with them which is, is really excellent I'm, I'm friends with a bunch of them now we do we facetime we do different things and stuff and they because like, they love to talk about movies they love to talk about horror and they love to talk about like you know how's your film doing how did you do this how did you do that you know it's it's a really interesting relationship that you develop going to these these things i will say that that's so, great um, it's just a way to find it and develop a tribe oh totally totally yeah, I, mean, I, I mean like uh, Fantasia is its own tribe, yeah. you know, uh, Brooklyn yeah. is its own tribe, you know, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of overlap too. Yeah. You know? And for, uh, for me, Jared Mayer was just like, I, I can't even like, I, I've never had an experience quite like that. It was every night they would have these dinners and it was all the, they would put all the filmmakers together. So like, you know, I got to hang out with Rose Glass on multiple occasions and with Lorcan Finnegan, who was there with Vivarium, and we all became friends. And, you know, you, it's just like to be able to meet and hang out with other people who are, you know, doing the same thing you're doing. Like, it's it's not easy to find that. And it's just, you know, to have people who kind of know what we had just been through and, you know, can offer advice and perspective is um, super valuable. Yeah, we became friends with like the, the Pierce brothers who did the wretched and stuff. Oh, hey, like, I just interviewed like, those guys uh, last week. Yeah, they're they're nice guys. Nice guys. Yeah, really nice um, guys. So we uh, we we followed them around the world. They followed us around the world. We became friends. If I was at a if, if I was at a festival that they weren't at, I think like like Tronch, they weren't at. But I took pictures. Like I was in the back and I took pictures of their audience so they could see. Oh, it's packed. You know, it's, here's your <laughs> picture. You know? Oh, that's so, awesome. Anyway, yeah. What was time. the name of that French festival? Le Tronche. Letrange. Letrange. Oh, that's, the, that's the one in Paris. Yeah. yeah. 
Is that the one that you said was amazing and there were like five star dinners every night? And I mean, that, that one was that one was really good. The, the the one that I was talking about was Gerard Mare. Oh, OK. Which I was not aware of, but it, apparently in France, it's extremely well known um, as a genre festival. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I, I again, like I was not aware of it, I guess, just being an American. But it's it's um, it's well known to be a, a great festival. And it like it has fans. I mean, like that whole town, it's kind of like uh, Sundance in that way. It's like this little ski town and it just gets taken over by the festival. And like, I think they played our movie three times, four times, four, four times. And it was four like, times and it was people. packed every time. Yeah. Like it was just like, it is a really well attended, really well run festival. Well, they, and, and, you know, to, to, they get a lot of money from the government is the reason it's like, so, so amazing. And from the local town as well. So there, there, there is that advantage, I think sometimes to being, being able to put on an amazing festival when you get some local money and everything, but they, you know, they had posters up in every shop window and stuff. And like, uh, you know, people were generally like entertained, uh, you know, when we do, uh, when we had our first Q and a and stuff like that. Like, uh, so, I mean, it was, it was definitely an experience I wasn't expecting thing but like it's definitely in the top like you know 25 to 50 festivals in terms of genre festivals you can get into i can tell you that yeah it sounds For great sure. yeah. so as far as you guys both being first timers when it comes to this being your first feature so to speak what were some of the big director and producer lessons that you uh, that you came away with for those aspiring uh, filmmakers listening <laughs> i mean for me how long is this podcast? Um, <laughs> as long as you need. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I will say this, like I went to film school and I probably learned more in the 15 days of shooting. Um, and actually in the, in the pre-production leading up to that too, um, than I did in, you know, a couple of years of film school. Um, you know, there's just nothing can prepare you for making a feature except making a feature. Right. Um, now that said, like, I don't regret film school and I don't regret, uh, doing the shorts I did. I think I wasn't, I wouldn't have been ready before that. And I, I mean, I still wasn't ready, but, um, I was more, I think I was more ready than I would have been. Um, so yeah, I mean like every day was packed with lessons and whenever I make a movie, I keep a, just like a text document um, that I call lessons from whatever. And, you know, it's just whenever something happens that's bad, you know, can I take a lesson from that? I write it down. Um, so I have a long document that's lessons from one BR. Um, but I would say like, you know, the, the sort of top of my list. Well, I I'd say one thing is, um, and this has sort of been a lesson I've, I've had to learn over and over with a lot of the movies I've made. Um, and this comes from, again, sort of like my basic personality. And like I talked about, you know, when I got to, to L.A., I'm not a I'm not by nature. You know, there were people I went to film school with who just had this like confidence in themselves, like I'm amazing and everything I do is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I don't have that at all. Um, and a big lesson that I, I think I'm finally sort of like learning is is just to trust myself, um, trust my instincts uh, and that you know, I won't be right a hundred percent of the time, but I'll be better off being wrong because I did what I thought was the right thing to do than being wrong because I let myself get talked into doing something that I thought was wrong. Hmm. Um, I'd rather, I'd rather have that happen. <laughs> um, 
And so that, that helped me, I think, because there's so much pressure and, you know, Alok, I think can testify to this too. Like everybody, the, the, the thing that was great, but was sometimes hard to remember while we were making a movie when you're in that pressure cooker is like, you know, if, if, if you're lucky and we were lucky in this case, like everybody is there, everybody's on the same side. Everybody is there to make the movie the best it can be. And perspectives will differ on exactly how to do that. Right. And so, you know, there were arguments, there were fights, there was friction, but it was always coming from a, a place of love and a place of passion and a place of creativity. Um, and so I think like being able to, sorry, sorry, cook this cat. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, um, you know, being able to, Oh, hang on. I'm going to have to let him out or he's going to tear apart my curtains. Hang on a sec. I love German shepherds. Girlfriend and yeah. I are thinking of getting one. You know what? That's tough. I'll say this. Uh, they, sorry, uh, sorry. They need a lot of uh, walking. Yeah, that's uh, what I heard. They, a lot of energy expenditure, especially when they are like teenagers, let's call it, because they don't listen to you. Uh, I got that dog from the pound. I think the reason they put her in there was because uh, she wasn't listening. And oh, she wow. didn't listen for, for a year. She was just a bad dog. Uh, and then she just turned a corner and became a good dog. I, I tend to try training, to be honest, but it all worked out. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry, Dave, did you finish? Sorry. No, no, I, yeah, I was just, I was, I was kind of going on and on. But I guess, like, if I had to boil it down, like, aside from just sort of like, you know, believe in yourself and, and, you know, once you're there, just trust your instincts as much as you can. The other things are more basic. I mean, the, the, the thing that I learned really early on was that a feature is a marathon, you know, a short film, you can, you can view it as a sprint. Like, you know, if you're shooting for four days, you're shooting for five days, you can just burn it at both ends and just like, you know, just bowl your way through it. You try to do that on a feature, you're going to burn out, you know, a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it became really important for me to protect my sleep um, and to find quiet moments during the day and keep myself as centered as I could possibly be under, you know, our, what are very non-centering experiences. Um, and then the other, the other part was learning. I'm, I'm, I'm a control freak, you know, as I think a lot of directors, um, are and, you know, and my experience up to this had been making shorts where I was self-financing and I was de facto the boss. I was the executive producer or whatever. Um, and I was not used to having a situation where I wasn't that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I have a, you know, I need to know what's going on. I need to know the problems that are happening, but at a certain point, there's so much happening on a feature set that you can't, you can't be on top of all that and still do your job as a director. And it, and it, it like the, one of the big lessons for me was, to learn to trust the producers that they were going to keep the ship afloat. And it was not easy to keep the ship afloat as a low, I'm sure can tell you in, in just a second. Um, but like for me to just believe that they were going to do it and walk on that set and project calm and create a, a creative space for the, for the actors and for the crew. Um, that was probably the most important lesson to, to learn. That's a big one. Yeah. I- I, I agree. I mean, Dave said it best, uh, you know, when we did have arguments and there weren't a lot to be honest, actually, there was just a, a couple. And when we did fight, it was just like, well, listen, we just, we, we'd fight, we'd say our piece and we'd be like, Hey, listen, you know, you know, we're all doing this because we love the film. We're fighting because we're passionate. We're fighting because of this. We're trying, fighting to make a better film. Yeah. So no one takes anything personal. We just move on next issue, you know? Uh, and like I said, we had a lot of it, Dave, to Dave's credit. I mean, we had a lot of issues that, uh, he trusts us with, 
that we didn't like, you know, freak out. And uh, we could have easily had the ship sunk one of many other times. Like uh, we, uh, we had, you know, fires like that shut down our production office. Oh God. It was like, you know, the whole four or five was on fire on like Mulholland. Oh, those fires. Like, yeah. Yeah. It looked like Mordor from like Lord of the Rings. Like right. there's a like video of it. I actually did write an article uh, for uh, I think movie maker magazine that goes into a lot of like the whole, hell that was our, produ- our pre-production and our, our production to some extent but it was a thing where um we uh we had fires and then we lost all our cast like you know our three leads like you know three three four days before shooting and uh had to replace them and, oh holy shit yeah it was a thing where um we had this sort of bigger we can't tell you who because you know liability or whatever libel sorry right. it's uh, uh we had a bigger tv actress who was going to play uh the sarah part and you know she made us hire a friend of hers uh who worked on some you know crappy show that i've never seen and uh and we we said yes to all of it and and then you know we're actually you know hunting for some sort of feminine energy drink that she requires uh, on set because uh, it, it wasn't going to get there in time for the for people who make it. We were Naturally. in Gelson's when her agent called us and told us she's out and we're like what oh god <laughs> we just feminine energy drink back on the shelf and walked out <laughs> <laughs> haven't been done dirty in the Gelsman's and Marina Del Rey. But uh, but like an hour later, like her, you know, her her, her friend who's the male lead calls, he's out too. And then then we decided to go to a bar because what else can happen right. on this very day? And we, we're at a bar drinking, just trying to figure out how to like make this right. And then we get a call from um, the lady, uh, the person who was going to play our older um, lady actress in mm-hmm. the film. Um, Susan Davis got the part and plays it now. She's the mom from War Game. She's fantastic in it. But we had another person for her, and this poor lady, her uh, her husband uh, uh, collapses, rushed to the hospital, dies. Oh man! Now she's out. So now we're like, what? What do we do now? All on the same day. So, yeah, and so like we get Nicole, and Nicole says yes, thankfully, and she's great. And like I said, we 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 upgraded with her because she we she was actually our first choice, but. You know, as producers, we were like, we need to go with this lady because right. she has, she can act and she has three million Instagram followers. I can see the money now. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, it didn't work out, you know. And so we got Nicole. She was awesome. She came out, had like five hours to rehearse with Dave, I want to say. Uh, that's it. And then just came to work on Monday and started working. And then um, on, on the Friday before the Monday we were shooting, uh, I got a bunch of reels of older lady actresses and, and, uh, and one of them was Susan Davis. And, I look at her reel at the end of it, there's a phone number and I call the phone number thinking it's going to be the agent or manager. It's not, it's her. So I'm like, all right, listen, this is highly inappropriate. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to pitch you the movie. I'm going to pitch you us. See what you think. <laughs> and so she was like, I've never been in that cult movie before. And I was like, at 1130, 1130, we had her sign. We wow. So waiting, waiting for, um, the Brian character plays by, played by, uh, Giles Maddie at the end of the day. Meanwhile, you're in production at this point. Well, no, we're, we're a few days out. Oh, you're a few we're days, a few days, days okay. out. Okay, we pushed everything for like a week just to kind of get our bearings again, and we could do that. And people, vendors were cool with it, and whatever. So, the uh, we're sitting at Barney's Beanery uh, on Friday night. We still don't have the mail part, and uh, like we're trying to call people like Jason Blum and you know friends that we know through different walks of life to ha- have them have the agency stay open late for us. Right? We're like, please help us, you know. And they do. And thankfully, um, Giles Maddie called, we get a call from Gersh, who helped us a lot, by the way. They were great. And uh, they said he's in. And what we found out later was that he was like driving down from San Francisco or something. And he had to pull over to the side of the road 
to like read read the script on his phone and he only read his part. He didn't even read the rest of the script. And thankfully he said yes. And we were like, ah, and we're making a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, so we did that. And then, you know, day six of shooting the movie, like we get this text in the middle of the night, like ah, something really bad happened, but I think it's going to be okay. And we're like, what the fuck is this? You know? So we find out that our three production trucks, which were parked in front of our offices, which uh. are, you know, in a fairly nice neighborhood. It's, it's across the street from the Getty. It's like considered Bel Air. Uh, it was on Sepulveda, but in the middle of the night, this white Escalade with no plates pulls up and three guys get out. And in eight minutes, one, one of the guys is driving away with their truck. And the good news was oh. what they didn't know what they couldn't have known really is that we had a parking PA in the middle truck who saw this happen and then decided to you know become a vigilante PA parking PA rather <laughs> and like followed got in his car and followed the truck holy like, shit the 405 the 10 to the 110 and he's on the phone with the police and the police are like sir you need to stand down and he's like I won't stand down I won't stand down till you are in pursuit of this truck holy da, da, da. shit so by the time he got to the 110 where the Felix sign is the iconic Felix sign that's where the police came in the helicopter light came on the truck and three cars like pulled in to oh chase my the god thing. the guy tries to run away and gun the truck and uh he just ends up destroying the engine to some extent but they end up catching him off you know right next to usc at this chevron slash mcdonald's station and uh we, there's actually video fit video footage of that oh uh, wow in, in that article so this guy it was he was new there was this is a this is a, a, a production truck stealing ring and this is the first time they've been caught. And they, their whole MO was to drive the trucks down to Tijuana and then, you know, break them down there. And um, this guy was oh, new to the raid. And so he turned state's evidence. And uh, we're, we're supposed to see some sort of restitution, which and I, I've never seen a die. Oh, holy uh, shit. But, you know, <laughs> but all that happened, and we're like, we can't let Dave know about this. We can't let anybody know about this. And so we, like... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was, it, was, it was actually all the Not light cameras. The, the yeah. camera, camera we took sent home with the DP. The, the DP took the camera. I mean, well, it's all your production so, equipment, your cameras, equipment, so everything was in that bad. truck. Anyways, but we ended up starting oh, an hour late. No one knew why. We just said, hey, we're starting an hour late. And we didn't tell Dave about it for a long time. That's I think it, maybe the rap party or something we told him finally. And, and then we didn't, even, we didn't tell any of the actors. And when we were at Fantasia doing our Q&A, and all the actors were there, they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? What <laughs> <laughs> we're like, you don't need to think about that shit. You have 15 days to shoot this goddamn movie. Fucking go back and blow your lines. You know? <laughs> <laughs> My God. So just one disaster after another. I was going to say it taught us a lot. And the other thing that I learned from you asking what we learned from this, right? Yeah. Trust your director. Especially if he's a writer director, he knows what the hell he's doing. He has a vision. You got to trust him. Uh, two, get a good editor off the bat. You need to do that. Like that's important. Three, um, put some money aside for uh, an, a good composer. Uh, it really does. That's one little thing I think that makes such a difference, and that you don't that you always see people skimping on 
and these kinds of films. Mm-hmm. It's like you have some sort of shitty keyboard going on in the background or whatever, right? I mean, we actually went and Ronan Landa is the guy that did the music. He did a fantastic job. Can't work, wait to work with him again. He had real instruments and everything. We had like French horns and we went into the studio and just watched him record some of this stuff. And he really does, it does make a difference. Like, yeah. When people look at your film where they ha- you have something of quality in the background and and, 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 and helping the scenes. And, and the, the last thing I would say that don't skimp on was, especially for things that are sort of scary, is your sound. And um, we got very lucky. Uh, my uh, high school friend slash college roommate from USC, Jason George, uh, is a big uh, uh, sound editor in the business. And he um, does, you know, he's done like 21 Jump Street and like Alice in Wonderland. And like he works on the blacklist. And he was able to, for you know, for free, right? He hasn't seen any money yet, poor guy. Uh, he was able to help us out and like get us on the sound stages and really like work with Dave on getting this mix just right. Cause we had a lot of like difficulty in the studio we were in uh, when we were making the movie with the sound, which Dave like was just, you know, very, he could tell you, he was very adamant about, but that, that's my piece as far as that. Dave, if you want to tell them the sound stuff. You can. <laughs> and invest in a vigilante parking PA. That's, that's yeah, that's sure. that's important. Good parking PAs is crucial. Yeah, we were trying to get him. We tried to get him a bottle of alcohol, and he's like, "I don't want that. I want some McDonald's gift certificates." Holy and we're shit! Like, well, can can I can we get you in and out certificates? He's like, "No, no, no. I want McDonald's." And we're like, "Okay, the heart want what wants what the heart wants. It's just what it is." <laughs> he sounds like a badass. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, I mean, throughout all of these trials and tribulations, was there ever a dark night at the cell where you guys were like, I don't know if we're going to even get this movie done? Was there? And, and if so, how did you get through that? I mean, for me, the, the, the darkest moment, I think, was day two, which is lucky in a way that it came so early <laughs> um, because we were shooting a whole bunch of just the really crucial outdoor stuff that day. So we had, mm-hmm. we started off in the, in the real apartment complex, which is where we were shooting all the breezeways, all the, all the exteriors, you know, inside the, inside the complex. And day two, you know, day one went fine. It was a bunch of, you know, sort of normal scenes. Um, and then day two, we were getting the entire ending, the entire ending that all the stuff that takes place inside the complex mm-hmm. at the end of the movie. It's all at night, but because of the rules of this complex, I think we had three hours of darkness mm-hmm. to shoot in. So we had three hours to capture the entire ending of the of the movie, um, which is you know, it's dozens of extras. There's a gun. There's blood effects. There's running. There's stunts. I mean, it was like it was madness, um, and and we didn't get it. We, we, you know, we, we, we sped through it as, as fast as we could. And we, and we barely covered most of the main action, but we, there were some pieces we didn't quite get. Um, and I remember coming away from that day, just like, you know, thinking like, is this what it's going to be? You know, the pace that we have to shoot at, are we just not going to be able to, to make our days? Cause I, that's, I think the first time I've ever not made a day, hmm. uh, as a director. Um, and it was, it was, you know, it was just a horrible feeling to feel like I just failed to, to get what we needed. Um, you know, but we, we regrouped, um, you know, the AD and, um, 
the DP and I sat down and we figured out how we could sort of shift some of these, you know, we still had two more days at the, at the complex. We figured out how we could shift things and get a little bit of extra time to try to pick up some of the stuff we missed. And we trimmed other things to, to, to catch up. And then, you know, we came back the next day and, and started catching up. And that was a, that was a good lesson. You know, it was like, it ain't over till it's over. You're, you know, you, you can, you can miss a day, but you can, you can adapt and you come back and you, and you just keep fighting. And I think, you know, from there on as tough as things got, I never had a moment of despair like I did at the end of that second day. Wow. I would say, and I talked about this already, my biggest moment of despair, I mean, as a producer, like once we start production, it's sort of like in the director's hands to some extent, we can help them any which way we can, but really it was like the mass exodus of cast yeah. in one day that like that dick punch after dick punch coming that like really just, just destroyed like my soul for a couple hours. Then we had some drinks. We thought about it. We're like, all right, let's try to get somebody else. Like, so that's what it was. <laughs> go to the bar, regroup. And that's that pretty much what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as, um, as far as directing when you were, what was the name of your lead actress again? I forgot. Nicole Bryden Bloom. That's right. When you were directing Nicole, obviously there's some very extreme subject matter and she goes through a range of different emotions and she's very, very compelling on, on camera. And I feel like that is where a lot of horror movies fall flat is when they have performances that are either cheesy or just not afraid enough or don't have any pathos. And I mean, she checked a lot of boxes, which I think was really made it powerful. So I'm curious as to what was your, your process with that. It's a, clearly you didn't have a ton of time to prep since she, she jumped onto the movie very late. So what, was yeah. your process like working with Nicole to get her emotionally ready for these scenes and the extremity of these scenes? I mean, I have to say like, that's, it, it was embarrassingly easy with her. She's just that good. Um, and we had seen it in her audition. She put herself on tape. She's based out of New York and, and her audition was just spectacular. Like, I mean, you know, you could see the emotion was there, you know, also just sort of the energy of the character. She just felt like Sarah. Um, but also what I particularly noticed was I had specifically given the actresses difficult scenes and scenes that had a lot going on and a lot of changes and required kind of, you know, a lot of sort of thought about what was happening with the character. And she was one of the very few who had clearly put in that thought and, and made really smart decisions. Um, and sometimes decisions that surprised me that I hadn't thought of. Um, so, you know, I, I knew going in that we were going to be in good hands in that regard, but what you don't know, you know, if you've not worked with someone before, and especially if you go in with as little rehearsal as, as we had is you just don't know what it's going to be like to work with a person, right? right. Some people give a great audition, but then they're going to be really difficult or they're going to have trouble getting, to where they need to go in the, you know, in, on, on the day, um, or, you know, any number of things can, can sort of happen in that working relationship. But I remember, um, you know, we had, as Alok said, we had, we had basically one afternoon, just her and me, we, we didn't even have time to get sort of the whole cast together. So it was just her and me, um, just going through the script beat by beat. Um, and I remember just in that audition, you know, sorry, in that rehearsal, like, you know, I, had, I specifically said going in, I was like, look, you know, this is, we're just trying to identify the beats. We're trying to make sure that we're very clear on the emotional arc because we're going to be shooting out of order. Um, and so don't, you know, you don't need to put 
a lot into this, you know, this, I'm not auditioning you, right. You've, you've got the role. This is just to like figure it out. And even there where she was, you know, specifically not giving it her all, like I could already see the emotion coming through. Like Mm. she can't help it. She just, she's just an actor. Right. And she wants to, to play that character. So even just, just that afternoon of seeing that and also just, you know, getting to hang out with someone for five hours, you get a sense of their personality. And I knew at that point that we were in the best possible hands because she's just, she's just a lovely person. She's there to work. There was no ego about it. There was no bullshit. It was just like she wanted, she wanted to, to, to nail that character and get the, and get the movie as good as it could be. And she understood that it was all on her shoulders. You know, I told her that, but she, she got it. You know, I was like, we're going to be on your face through like 75% of this movie. This yeah. all plays out on you. Um, and, uh, and that did not daunt her, you know, as young as she is, like, I have rarely seen that level of just acting skill, because like you said, we, you know, we were moving so fast. We usually, we were shooting minimal coverage, a couple of setups per scene usually. And we were shooting a couple of takes per setup. We just didn't have time for anymore. And she got there. She would often get there on take one. Wow. And just that full, full emotional volume. I mean, I- and it was uncanny. And then, and then that gives you all this freedom as a director, because then you can go, you know, okay, we've got it and talk to her and go like, let's, you know, let's try something different for, for take two. Um, but you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to hold her by the hand. I didn't have to walk her through things. She, you know, the, I think the, the most important thing for me to do with her was to, was to keep her oriented because we were shooting in such weird order that the most important thing for me to do was say like, this is where we've just come from. This is where you are in your journey. And then the adjustments I would make often were just like, I think, you know, the volume here is, is more like a seven. You're giving me a five. I think given what's just happened story-wise, like we need to just, but it was, it was easy because she, she's smart and she got it. I was going to say she is amazingly talented. Like she could, I would say she can cry eight different ways. She would be crying in one scene, and, and, and it's like the tear didn't fall exactly how she wanted it. I'm like, we can edit that. No, no, I'm gonna do. We do it again, and then it falls perfectly. I'm like, Whoa. who does this? She's like a crying robot. Like it's amazing. She's she's so good. And Giles, Giles <laughs> she, she is the she is the opposite of a robot. No, I know, I know, I know. But I'm saying like she could just hello. She can turn I, it on. It can come. You know, it's like whatever she wanted. Giles, Giles, Maddie was the same way. Uh, he could cry. Like he has one scene where he cries. He was just there, amazing. You know, it's a funny story. Uh, I always like to tell this, but um, the cat that we used, its uh, name in the story is Giles. And then our lead actor, Brian, is also named Giles, Giles Maddie. And so we would be like, that fucking cat is just a one-take cat. That's one-take Giles right there. <laughs> Giles, Giles, you should come over here and learn something from this cat. What's, that's the one-take Giles on the set right here. One-take Giles. And it's like, fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just going to say one more thing about Giles because he's he's an amazing actor. I mean, and, and another level of all this that, you know, people watching the movie probably won't even realize is that on top of doing this, like, amazing emotional performance, he's doing an American accent. The guy's British. Oh. And he does this flawless American accent, you know, and he would, you know, would be doing his thing, getting emotional, pure, sounding just as American as you can be. And then, you know, cut. And it's like, hey, mate, I, how'd that go? And it's just like. <laughs> wow i'm always amazed when people with like british and australian accents can nail an american accent so well and just fool me they're so 
there's so few American actors who can do it. I feel like Johnny Depp, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Every time I see Andrew Lincoln interviewed, I'm like, wait a minute, you have a British <laughs> accent. I didn't know Rick had a British I remember accent. Being, as, a, as a kid, being blown away when I first heard Bob Hoskins interviewed um, when Roger Rabbit came out because I had no idea. I didn't even know that was a thing. He like just seems like a hard-boiled, pulpy detective man yeah. from America. Okay, we, we got, we got, you know, very lucky with a lot of the cast. Uh, Naomi Grossman, uh, who plays Janice, is from American Horror Story. She's an old friend. She was, oh yeah. She, a, she took a small part. She, you know, she has no ego with her. She did a great job. Mm-hmm. And then our call leader, Taylor Nichols, is fantastic. Um, I, uh, I'm a huge fan of Metropolitan and uh, the Whit Stillman movies, the Barcelona and stuff, and. I actually had met him at a party a year before we actually were shooting the movie. And I was like, I, I love you. You know, let me just tell you, I have a Metropolitan poster at home. And like, uh, you know, I, I basically assaulted him with like uh, my, my kindness or whatever it was. And <laughs> a year later, I call him. I'm like, hey, listen, I'm that Indian guy who like just like was all like in your face, like, you know, assaulting you with kindness. And uh, I have a movie now. I want you to be in. <laughs> And he remembered me and was like, all right, let me take a look. Da, da, da. And he was like, cool. And he, he loved the script. And, you know, um, he uh, he's he's such an interesting actor, I think, because usually in certain ways he plays, you know, kind of a nice guy a lot of times. Right. Um, like he's in a PN, uh, PN15 right now on Hulu. And he's like, plays the dad, you know. Uh, whereas in our movies, like, you know, without giving away too much, he, he definitely has a maniacal kind of side, which he plays just so interestingly just just his face like he it's 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 creepy as hell yeah <laughs> what actor is this what's his name taylor nichols okay got him it's jerry plays jerry yeah so what was the cult research process like how uh, how deep down that rabbit hole did you go and what were some of the the, the details that you you were able to discover about cults when, when you were making this movie it's funny because that in some ways started before I started the script. Like I just had been interested in, in cults and I think especially moving to LA and starting to realize like how many of these sort of utopian communities and fringe religions and stuff were started in LA. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I was already interested in it and just kind of reading about that stuff. Um, you know, when, when I wrote the script and I think it's part of what inspired the story, um, but then that said, like, especially when I went back and did the rewrite, I did spend a lot of time kind of reading up because I wanted to sort of, I wanted to get a sense of what were sort of some of the more real techniques and especially the, the psychological techniques, because mm-hmm. I wanted to really delve into that as much as I could. Um, and I would say that the, the single group that there are elements of a lot of different groups but the um the single group that it's most closely modeled on probably is synanon which was a um a group that started in the late 50s in los angeles um and and this was a thing that i found out about a lot of these groups was that uh you know they would be they were started with the purest of intentions with really positive ideas um and that was true. So Synanon was started as a drug rehab uh, at a time when there wasn't really such a thing, when when drug addiction was very much stigmatized, uh, even more than it is today. And um, and there wasn't a place for people to go to get help. Um, and they started as a way, as a place for people to, to go and to, to break their addiction. Um, but unfortunately, the guy who started it was a sociopath. <laughs> um, Oops. and, uh, 
yeah, or or at least that manifested at some point. But yeah, at some point he he decided that nobody would ever be cured of their addiction, and so they had to come live with the other members. Um, and then from there, it just kind of it kind of slowly morphed into this very violent and repressive um, group. Um, so a lot of the uh, there there are specific scenes and sort of the overall structure of the of the of the group is 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 a lot based on Synanon. And there are some specific scenes um, that circle. It's in the montage in the middle. There's that circle where they're they're slapping the guy. Um, that is directly taken from things that used to happen at at Synanon. Oh God. Um, and you know, and then the, there are other elements that are taken from other from other groups, um, but. Um, but yeah, uh, one little bit of trivia that I always like to tell about Synanon um, is that at some point they they moved they moved out of LA they moved up to the Bay Area to a ranch because they were I think because they were being prosecuted for stuff in in LA and um, and around that time for whatever reason Charles Diedrich who was the the leader uh, decided that everybody had to shave their heads men and women so they all shaved their heads. And then that was around the time that George Lucas was up in the Bay Area making THX 1138. Mm. And he needed a whole bunch of bald extras. And oh so all God. the extras you see in THX 1138 are Synanon cult members. Oh, man. Were they a suicide cult, yeah. Synanon? No, no, it didn't. They, there was like, um, I, I don't know if anybody was murdered, but there were there were threats of murder somebody left a snake in a mailbox i remember was one of the things that happened uh, that's joe exotic like, kind of shit <laughs> yeah yeah it was that that kind of stuff i mean it's it's not dissimilar i think all these things sort of follow similar trajectories because at a certain point when they are getting prosecuted for for things they start to feel persecuted right they start to feel like the whole world is at, is against them and therefore they are justified in doing anything to fight back and so you get Classic. like the rajneeshis trying to like you know, poison the a city in, in Oregon with salmonella so they can win the countywide elections or whatever. Um, so it's that you see really similar patterns over and over with these groups. Yeah. Other important question. What is the uh, possibility of a sequel looking like? Clearly the ending left open uh, a distinct possibility. Spoiler. No, not really a spoiler alert, but there's, it's indicative that there, there, there may be more to this story. So what's the likelihood of a sequel? I mean, one bedroom, two bath. Hey. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they can do the prequel just, studio I, apartment. I, right. I think that there's definitely room for if people have interest uh, to do a sequel. Um, you know, uh, we have a lot of we have a couple of different ideas. I think we're playing around with, right, Dave? I mean, it's. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that you know, before that's probably going to happen. Um, you know, I'm doing a movie uh, with uh, called Emergent, and that's. Um, with like produce, producing partner Shane Borister, uh, that's going to be first, and then after that, actually, we're trying to do another movie with David. Oh, nice! Um, with uh, we got we all got along. We want to be his, you know, Terrence <laughs> Chang is John Woo, uh, nice the producers. Um, but uh, it's a re- this this new film that he's doing that we're doing is awesome, and we can't tell you a lot about it because we're trying to JJ Abrams that shit, keep it secret for a little bit. Uh, and build it up a little bit, and uh, it's. But it's. I can tell you this: it's a bigger budget film, uh, and it's a, a different sort of genre, uh, a little, a little different genre than we what we've just done. But interesting. But, uh, but a cool film, a thinking man's film, nonetheless. Uh, so, uh, 
stay tuned for that. Hopefully, we'll uh, when we get up and running again in the fall, we'll uh, start figuring out a time and place to uh, to shoot that. You know? All right, yeah. And this is under your your production yeah, company, yeah, right? Yeah, ideally. Cool. Well, awesome, guys. Really, really great seeing you both again. And uh, this was this was definitely a lot of fun. Any parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Just keep doing it. I mean, the, the advice I always give anyone who wants to be a director is um, learn to be a writer. I think that's the best thing you can possibly do as a director. I, I would say, you know, if you've done like two shorts, don't do any more shorts. Take, take the time and energy that you're using and go and make a feature because the sad part of it is that people want to know that you're in the club. And even if you make a bad movie, hopefully you won't make a bad movie because maybe you don't deserve to be in the club, frankly. But hopefully you make a good movie and you, you know, at that point, people respect you to the point that they'll give you hopefully money to do another movie. And unless you make that leap, because there's a lot of fear. I mean, like Dave talked about, like, say, not having self-confidence. I, I didn't have confidence in certain ways where, why should anyone trust me with money? What have I done? I've just tested movies for a living, but I've never made a film. So when you make a film, though, you have some, and you make, you know, a good film with a visionary like David, then you have confidence to actually go and make more films. Like, so that it's sort of like a, a self, you know, a, it feeds off each other. It, it, the whole thing feeds off each other. And that's what I would say. Don't do shorts, do features if you can't. Spend that time and energy doing that. All right. Great. All right. All right, guys. Thank you again. This was great. Cool. All right, Nick. Cheers, man. Fantastic. Thank you. So what, what happened was a kind of a lot of different things. It was kind of a perfect storm that happened to us. Like, okay, listen, you know, COVID was such you know it was bad luck but then it was sort of good luck in a way because everyone's stuck at home so this little movie that should be nothing just takes off on vod right how is this movie like the number four movie in the country for a couple of you know weeks number certainly the top 10 on itunes horror charts for for a couple of weeks and then and even now we're still in the top, like, you know, 100. And we've been kind of, when they lower the price, we dip into the top 20 again. Like, which happened, like, I don't know, two, three weeks ago. We were, like, in the top 20 for as long as they had it for that price. Like, please go back to that price. Well, I do want to make a lot of money, though. But, you know. Um, so what, what happened was a lot of different things. COVID was one of them. But what we had done from the very beginning was, first off, we made, made sure that everyone had a great time on set. That was like super important. Like every, it was a very fam, you know familial hmm. kind of uh, set where we like you know appreciated everybody. We tried to do anything we could if there was you know people didn't like this or whatever. We tried to help them, you know, whatever. So I think that everyone had a really great experience on set, and that translated to them want to help wanting to help out when we actually did um, you know premiere. Uh, at Fantasia, we like brought actually, you know, anybody we could as far as the, you know, most of the cast and stuff uh, to, to Fantasia. And they, they were there for the Q and A's and they did all the, did all the press and, you know, whatever else. So we automatically got a nice bump out of Fantasia of like, you know, 26 people had already reviewed the film. And then by the time we hit, um, uh, Beyond Fest uh, here in LA, like a lot of the cast live here, so they all showed up, and and all the producers, and, and everybody else, and uh, certainly you know David. David's been a partner. I mean, he's a producer on this, yeah. right? So he is a partner, and um, and it only helps him for his career, right? You know, it's just no, it's no brainer for him. So 
we got every one of these people to you know help us with Beyond Fest and Brooklyn. Like uh, we had like huge responses from all these festivals. By the time we had finished with like sort of like the East Coast West Coast premieres and also the you know premiere in France and then England and different things, we had like you know fifteen Rotten Tomatoes accredited articles. Mm-hmm. Now I think that you know people would argue with horror fans it doesn't matter if you're in Rotten Tomatoes because they'll watch it anyways. But here's the real thing you have to think about, and this is the thing you don't think about. Well, what if you get you can get people who aren't hardcore horror fans to watch your movie? Because yeah. that's everybody else, right? And you'd be stupid if you weren't trying to explore that in some way. Because a Rotten Tomato score is on your is on goddamn iTunes. When you pull up iTunes, you pull up your movie. There's a score right next to it. What are people who are you know you know people who are discerning like consumers going to think if they see nothing there or if they see an eighty eight there? Yeah. Right. You know, it's another reason for them to want to watch the movie and click yes, I'll buy that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Basically, by the time we had um, finished up sort of like our other kind of premiere things and this and that, we had like 15 Rotten Tomatoes accredited reviews. And we were, you know, very much like, um, you know, working with our, uh, with Dark Sky and PI, who's our sales agent distributor, to make sure that our launch was uh, really great and had a ton of coverage and stuff. And, you know, Dread Central, obviously, such huge supporters of us, uh, you know, many articles and, and fantastic, you know, feedback. We even had our composer on with Joshua Milken uh, to uh, talk talk music and stuff. You right. Know? Like, uh, he's, it was great. And um, so so we did, we purposely very much constructed a great sort of launch for it, right? And it just so happened to be during COVID, coming back to that. We did so well on VOD. We were still doing well on VOD. Like the movie came out April 24th and it came out like in the UK, like, you know, June, the first week of June. And it's still in the top 25 in the UK. Right. Mm-hmm. Like um, they lowered the price a little bit. Like <laughs> <laughs> always <laughs> helps. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but like this all in concert together happened. And then after that was over, you know, we didn't, we first, you know, I'll be honest, Netflix and Hulu and uh, Amazon all passed on us. Right. Like, we're like, what the fuck are we going to do with this? Like, you know, like I mortgage my house for this. <laughs> it's like, what are we going to do? But the good luck going back to that was that, you know, we did so well in VOD. Netflix came back around. And we're like, hey, well, we'd like to pick you up. And we were like, fuck, yeah, we'll do it. Like, you know, So <laughs> we did. So then in my head, my monkey brain as a producer, and this may not have happened had it not been for COVID. Like, I started thinking, listen, I know that, you know, Dark Sky, God bless them. They've done everything they can do. They're Moving on to other projects. We're not the only, like, you know, uh, cow in that, you know, pasture, let's say. Uh, they, they have other things they have to, you know, be responsible for. But me as a producer, I was like, uh, my other movie is delayed right now. Uh, we're not shooting probably till January now. So what am I doing with my time? Okay, I'm reading a lot of scripts. I'll, I'll say that. But every day I got up in the morning, I would think to myself, how can I sell 100 movies? What can I do today to make sure that 100 movies get, 100, 100 copies of our movie get sold somewhere around the world? So I basically did my research and I started understanding sort of the, um, all the podcasts that I could do. Also, like, you know, we weren't quite certified yet. So, I mean, you know, I, I was helping um, uh, our partners, Blue Finch uh, Film uh, in, uh, in the UK with uh, sort of the, uh, the, the press publicity push over there. So I started like, you know, really researching Rotten Tomatoes reviewers. And I, I basically like, you know, uh, was approaching some of them on uh, their behalf to, to, to do reviews and stuff like that. And then I am, um, you know, in addition to that, that constant sort of like little trickle of, of like reviews that kept on coming out ahead of this Netflix review. Like, I mean, from, from, from our Blu-ray release, like the beginning of June and also was the UK release um, and being on VOD in the States every week we had four or five, six articles coming out. Not articles, if not articles, 
interviews, if not interviews, podcasts, mm-hmm. reviews, or interviews. I researched like every big podcast. You could just look at our list of podcasts that we did. And it was like, I mean, gosh, it was everybody from like Shockwaves to, you know, um, the Boo Crew to like, um, to, well, to you as well, uh, Movie Maker Magazine, um, you know, the Really Scared Podcast, Dark Discussions, uh, Friday 13th Podcast, Civil Gore Podcast, Final Guys, Where the Scary Things Are Podcast, Tarek Podcast, the Necronomicon, the Horror Movie Podcast, Car Car Kane, um, Dads Who Drink, Gruesome Magazine Podcast. I can go alternative ending podcast i can go on and on and on uh, you know but we went to all these podcasts and the great news was that we had great because all our film our filmmakers or our actors had such a good time on the movie they were very happy to come on and help us with this because it became sort of a commissive like this little film that could was the idea right so if you have like all these podcasts and all these articles and all these things coming out ahead of your netflix release maybe it was us doing all that that made it work Maybe it was the fact that it films a good film and tests really well and like as you know, eighty as high as eighty-eight percent of Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's a combination of all of those things. It's, it's almost like a grassroots level sort of like in interaction. And I tell you this, those podcasts got just so amazing because every time like I tweet something, they're all retweeting it. And they have like eighty thousand followers or whatever it is. And I, I can't I have to think that all of that stuff went into getting this movie to number one. Yeah. And, and, and it was a thing like, I don't know if this would have happened or not if COVID hadn't happened, but because it was happening and everyone was trapped at home, I'd be goddamned if I wasn't going to do everything I could to like, make sure that we saw a hundred copies a day. Like, that was in my <laughs> mind. And it was so funny, this thing, because you're just, you're just like this, you're just this idiot in a dark room, like, you know, mailing people and doing whatever else. And just like one guy, one guy doing all this shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And then when you hit number one, I tell you, I cried like a baby. Yeah. I, cried. I was just like, this happened. We did it. Like I was like, I was listening to the Rocky four theme in the corner and just crying. I was so emotionally just, it was a culmination of everything we tried to do. Like, you know, on the small, small level to get it there. And like, you know, I, I would give the same, I'm, I'm trying to help other filmmakers that are smaller filmmakers right now that are, you know, friends of mine. I'm just like, Hey, listen, build your Twitter followers. Get people that are like horror-centric Twitter followers that you try to get as your followers and follow them in turn and see, you know, because they'll see you releasing these like social media like bursts of information. And at some point, if they haven't seen the movie, they're like, I got to give this movie a shot. You know, (laughs) I'll do this. And as you know, like horror fans are, they're nothing like horror fans. I mean, there's a reason there's like 220 conventions like worldwide like every year. When, you know, when it's not COVID, right? But I mean, when, it, when it's when it's regular, uh, there, there's that many people. They're they're very, um, you know, amazing fans that are just voracious for you know material. And when they they think you have like a what what they call a discovery movie, like they want to tell their friends, right? And that's the thing about this film. It, it straddles a line. It's a horror film. It's a thriller. It's a psychological thriller too. But the horror fans, by large, by large, have I think really driven this thing home because it's 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 crazy to me that you know this little no budget film could like beat everything else. There's like a million things to watch on Netflix. Yeah, you were the number one thing. You one were number day. one above that like whatever seventy five million dollar Jamie Fox movie. You beat that out. Eighty five million actually. <laughs> <laughs> but who's counting? Yeah, we actually texted him. We were like, "Hey, respect. You know, game recognizes game." <laughs> <laughs> no hard feelings, Jamie. 
<laughs> no, but I feel like it speaks to the importance of of producers and directors understanding that once the movie's made, once it's picked up, the the job does not end there. I mean, you had to constantly hustle this movie left, right, and center to get it to where it got on Netflix. And like you said, it's a very low budget movie, and you were beating out enormously budgeted movies. And it's a horror movie, which is not always the most popular genre. And you guys just just went right to the top, which is it's extraordinary. Well, but it's I mean, all yeah. on the back of you just busting your ass to get this movie seen. Well, we, we got you know we had you know it was we a lot of things went into it. I mean, COVID's one of them. You know, people are at home. There's not as much cool stuff coming out right now. Like uh, there's there people were holding stuff, but like you know there's, they're, they're trying to go into production now. But you know, fucking yeah. Batman just got sick over here. Right? You see that? <laughs> what happened to Batman? Robert Pattinson has COVID. They shut Batman down now oh, again. Oh, fuck. Yeah. This is, as a producer, this is a nightmare in my head now. Whoa. Like, like, we're trying to shoot our next movie, and we're like, well, what can we do? We're, we're going to have to shoot in like January, February. That's what's happening. We're, we're casting right now. Yeah. It. It's just going to see where we, and where can we shoot? Like, like we're looking at like, you know, Canada, even South Africa or Eastern Europe, let's say, or wherever there's not COVID. And maybe by that time there'll be a vaccine, you know, uh, that's the hope. Um, but like, you know, you think about trying to shoot stuff, but it was going back to COVID. COVID was a, a big part of it in a weird way. But I think that it was also just effort. Like, you know, we, we definitely got in with all these podcasts that are really like, you know, they, they have their fans and people listen to them and they like, they go and they like preach almost from the horror pulpit, let's call it. Right. Like, you know, you always see these like, you know, uh, faith-based movies where these uh, people go in grassroots level and they go to the, the priests in the, in the parishes and they're like, Hey, listen, you know, and they'll, and they'll tell their congregation to go see it. And you'll go to that theater to go see that movie. And there's like 10 people in the theater, but it, yet it's sold out right hmm. that's what they do this is this is something that i learned in market research this is what we tried to do with the podcasts and with like all the different you know um you know uh, websites and like you know everybody right like we've had multiple articles from the dread central or the you know bloody disgusting of the world and everybody else have been a real supportive family for us and so i think that's the biggest the biggest part of it is is probably just that just getting the word out to those people any which way you can and that will you know help you you know that's yeah. what i will tell you that's amazing, man. Really, really amazing. Well, huge congratulations to you guys. I mean, I loved the movie. I shot a long time ago. It feels like Brooklyn Film Festival was <laughs> how? What, six months ago? Last year, dude. What? We did this in October. Oh shit! That's almost a year ago. <laughs> it's like we, we were in. A, yeah, dude. Like, Whoa. It was like, and how much has happened in a year? Like, I mean, it's just it's it's nuts. Like, we're not living on this. We're not living in reality. It's like you know, yeah. like, I, it, it's crazy. Well, that's great, man. Uh, yeah, again, huge congratulations. I'm so glad to see the film getting the recognition it deserves. And uh, yeah, it's a testament for all you producers and directors out there. you got to hustle the hell out of that movie because people are, it's not going to, word of mouth is not going to spread on its own. Yeah. So hats and, off and to also, you, man. Also, huge congrats. Be nice, be, nice, be nice to your actors. Give them a great experience and they will, they'll help you out. Like, uh, I mean, Naomi Grossman and I, for example, are like best friends. I've been, I mean, we were friends like, you know, for 20 years, let's say, right? And she is like such been a, it was an ally coming on, like, you know, she'll, she'll come on like two, two, two times a week, you know, just like help us hype this thing and do whatever else. And she is just like so, I mean, amazing as a friend. Taylor Nichols helped us, has helped us out so much as well. He's, he's been really great. And, and Giles Maddie and, and definitely Clayton Hoff and, and Ronan Landa, who was our composer. And obviously, you know, uh, you know, 
Peter Polk, who you know did like House of the Devil and did our little film as an executive producer. He's been very helpful, and like you know, I think all of us sort of looked at it as the little film that could, and 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 we went at it from that point of view. Everyone wanted to see what could happen with it, and it it, it worked. It yeah, worked. you know, the, cue the Rocky theme. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congratulations, man! Really, really happy for you guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. I'm sure you kids at home were taking notes, but regardless, I've got a recap of key takeaways from this conversation with David and Alok. Number one, get yourself a ride or die PA. The parking PA that David and Alok hired single-handedly saved the movie when he chased down the stolen production truck housing the necessary equipment to finish the movie. This is above and beyond going above and beyond. While we don't advise you to encourage your crew to put themselves in any kind of danger, the willingness of this PA to engage in a fucking high-speed pursuit for the sake of the movie is what you want. These crew members are worth their weight in gold because they care about your film enough to stick their neck out for it. So if you're lucky enough to find anyone like this as a PA, keep them happy and keep them close. Number two, if you're a first-timer, find other first-timers. On one bedroom, Alok was a first-time producer and David was a first-time director. This created a serious spirit of adventure for the movie as both guys were embarking into the unknown and figuring things out by themselves. It's also common knowledge that first-timers will often work harder because of how much is riding on their first film. So if you're a first-time director, you're probably not going to get Mark Duplass or Jordan Peele to produce your first movie. Therefore, if you have the opportunity to work with a first-time producer, take it. First-timers often have something to prove, so this is a clear case of having skin in the game. First-timer collaborations are great for this reason, but make sure you hire a very experienced crew and listen to them, because you first-timers are likely not going to know what the fuck you're doing on set half the time, so you'll need people around you who do. Alok and David made sure their crew were very experienced, so they were in good hands. Number three, track your lessons. When you're new to filmmaking, so many lessons are going to present themselves to you and they're going to do so so fast and in such a hectic time period that you'll likely forget most of them by the time you wrap. This is such a shame because you're going to want to carry these lessons onto the next movie that you make. To remedy this, David kept a text document of lessons learned on every single day of filming One Bedroom and he would take a few minutes each day to write these down and reflect on them. By the end of the movie, he was left with a wealth of lessons and insights which he can turn to for his next movie. When you're in production, do this. It will take you two to five minutes a day, but it will be priceless wisdom that you can use throughout your entire filmography. Number four, make sure everyone has fun on set. As crazy as things may have gotten, Alok and David made sure to keep their set a fun and engaging experience. Countless directors have spoken about the importance of keeping a high energy and communal set, but few have spoken about the dividends that this pays in the long run. A lot of sets are brutal and very unenjoyable. If yours is a positive experience, your cast and crew will appreciate you and do what they can to help the movie out. This was particularly true for One Bedroom, whose cast made themselves very available for multiple interviews and articles, all of which collectively help the movie's success. So beyond it being the right thing to do, a healthy and fun set will create a community of people who will naturally want to help you fight for the movie's success. Number five, sell 100 movies a day. 
After one bedroom was released on VOD, Alok decided that he would commit to selling at least 100 copies of the movie every single day. This led him down a very focused path of ensuring the movie got a fresh Rotten Tomatoes score by pitching the movie to accredited reviewers and by getting the movie as much exposure as possible through tons of blogs and podcast interviews. This was a serious hustle, but damn, did it pay off. When attempting to pull off something as big as what Alok and David set out to do, it often helps to break these goals down into smaller, quantifiable daily tasks. So if you're ambitious and not sure where to start, start by setting out to sell 100 movies a day and watch the momentum from there. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Yeah.